Do not resist the one who is evil. Turn the other cheek. You, therefore, must be perfect. These three statements featured in our text for this morning have been tragically misinterpreted over the years. Do not resist the one who is evil has been suggested to mean don't push back against evil or injustice. The Christian way is to simply let it run its course. Turn the other cheek has been taken to mean victims of abuse don't try to fight back or escape. Accept suffering because Jesus has shown it to be good. And you, therefore, must be perfect has been taken to mean that the point of Christianity is to achieve a kind of moral perfection or individual righteousness. Now, these statements and the intervening material in our passage, I think, need to be reexamined. And since it's February, it's Black History Month, in recent years our nation has witnessed a surge of debate over issues of racism, oppression, and injustice, I think this is exactly the sort of passage that we need to re-examine in our cultural moment. Friends, these issues are so front and center that we can't afford to be ignorant. We can't afford to be insensitive or, even worse, silent. And it just so happens that in our text for this morning, I think Jesus weighs in on precisely such issues. So if you haven't already, friends, would you turn with me to Matthew 5, verse 38. Matthew 5, 38. I'll be reading from the ESV. If you've been following the lectionary, you'll see that I swerved just a little from the lectionary reading for this morning, which was Matthew 5, 21 through 37. I looked at that text and I I really tried to make it work, but it covers such a range of topics anger, lust, divorce, oaths that I just didn't think I could do it justice in a single sermon. And these last 11 verses comprise the climax, a kind of crescendo that ends chapter 5, and in many ways it kind of sums up what Jesus has been saying all along. So Matthew 5, 38, I'll be reading through verse 48, and as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You may be seated. Identifying Jesus' audience in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is essential to a responsible reading of this passage. And if we back up a few weeks, you remember in my sermon on the Beatitudes that Jesus is not speaking to elites. He's not speaking to Roman officials, those in power, nor is he really speaking to the middle class. But on the Mount of Beatitudes, he's speaking to oppressed Galilean peasants who faced three layers of taxation from Rome, Herod, the temple in Jerusalem. They were being pried off of their ancestral land, forced into heavy debt. Some of these people had to sell themselves into slavery to make money for their family. They had to farm all day and then hire themselves out as day laborers. The examples then that we see here, these three examples of being slapped on the cheek, of, of being forced to go a mile or two, and being taken to court and having your, your cloak taken, these were not abstract examples. These weren't like, if this sort of thing happens to you, it probably won't, but if. No, these were realities that these people faced regularly. So this passage provides Jesus' perspective on situations of social oppression and injustice that were happening regularly, all the time, in Galilee in the first century. Now, while many of you, and myself included, don't experience these sorts of situations, this sort of oppression, there are many in our country, and even in our state, who do. So I think knowing how Jesus addresses such situations, friends, it'll help free us from ignorance and insensitivity and silence and will help us to flip on the lights for the world, which I'll explain a bit more in a moment. So we'll go through this text, walking through the verses in detail, and I'll close with some words of application. But before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these ancient words. Lord, I pray that you would just guide us as we seek to understand these statements written in a context so remote from ours, but not so remote that we can't understand it or relate to some of these realities. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, 
whatever it is that you have for us. And may everything that we do this morning serve to energize us for your mission. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's just dive in then and start with verse 38 in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you. If you back up a little, you'll see that this is the formula. This is the pattern that persists throughout Matthew 5. Jesus has taken pains to say that my ministry, my teaching is not in contrast to that of Moses. He said before in verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come rather to fulfill them. And then he moves through a series of texts from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, where he cites verbatim certain passages and then offers a deep, fresh, we could maybe call it a Christian reading of that text, which is in alignment with the spirit of the passage. So he does this about anger, about lust, adultery, divorce, and so forth. And then in the ESV, we get this heading, retaliation, at verse 38. So you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a direct citation of Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. This appears three times in three different versions in the first five books of the Old Testament. So this is a statement, this is a, a sentiment that these people were quite familiar with. Now, for us today, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth this law of retaliation, lex talionis, it, it appears rather cruel. But in its original context, this was actually meant to bring order and meant to limit violence in that culture. So the idea would be that, let's say if you have some buddies over to uh, have a campfire and you're roasting some marshmallows... And you know how things go. You put a marshmallow on the stick and, you know, somebody pokes someone's eye out with the stick. Um, That person could get so angry, so full of wrath, that that he, you know, holds it inside and days later he he burns down that person's farm. He kills his entire family. He, He utterly overreacts to that action. This was meant to limit such a response. And friends, that sort of thing, probably not with the marshmallows, but that sort of thing actually happened, especially when a loved one was harmed, that the, the other person would respond with such wrath that the, the, the punishment far outweighed the crime. So this was meant to be merciful, saying that if somebody pokes your eye out, the most you can do is have their eye poked out. And the same goes for teeth and so on. So that is the passage that Jesus is citing, and then he provides a deep reading of it. But I say to you, in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, some take this to mean 
allow the evildoer, the one who pokes your eye out or punches your teeth out, allow them to just keep doing what they're doing. But friends, that would stand in direct contradiction to what Moses writes in the Old Testament. And Jesus has told us that his words are aligned with the spirit of these laws. So I, I cannot accept such a reading. This word resist in Greek is really difficult to translate and interpret, but the best way I can explain it is with an example. Um, my wonderful son, Leland, has come built with a, uh, what you could call a strong will, I guess you could say. I don't know where he gets it from. Um, I also have such a will at times, and so Leland will try to do things that he's not supposed to do, and I don't want him to do those things. And Danielle warns me, but we get into what she calls a power struggle, where I kind of stoop to his level, the toddler categories, and we're pressing against each other, and there's no progress. I'm using the same weapon as him, and nobody wins. Friends, that, that is what Jesus is saying, is when somebody does evil to you, do not push with the same force, don't use the same weapon, the same means. This is restated elsewhere as do not repay evil with evil. Some manuscripts actually read that way here. So the idea is do not respond to evil in kind with the same sort of action. But Jesus is not saying do not respond. So then we get three examples where Jesus really fleshes out exactly what he means by this deep reading. And the key to these examples is to draw out the original cultural context at play. So the first example is probably the most famous, and that comes in verse 39. He says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this first century context was what you could call a, it was a right-handed world. Left-handedness was considered unclean or abnormal. It was shameful. And in Jewish culture, the left hand was reserved for only the most unclean of actions. And in human life, you can imagine what sort of things those were. And so in daily life... Jews in the first century would use their right hand to greet people. Um, if, if there was a fight, a conflict, striking with the right hand and so forth. To strike someone on the right cheek, I want you to picture this. If you were facing someone, what would you need to do to hit them on the right cheek? And the word is slap, open-handed slap. Either you would have to backhand the person with your right hand, which could be what the language suggests, and that action was reserved uh, for masters beating their slaves. It was humiliating, kind of putting them in their place. Sometimes Roman officials would do this to defiant bystanders, to backhand them. But the other option 
would be to strike them with the left hand. Friends, we're not dealing here with a peer-to-peer fistfight. That's not what's in view. This is somebody in power humiliating somebody who is poor, who is low in society, putting them in their place either with a, a backhand or with a slap with the unclean hand. There's evidence that fines for for such a slap among Jews could be as much as 400 days wages, labor wages. 400 days if you were caught striking appear that way, humiliating. And what does Jesus say to do in that instance? He doesn't say retaliate with violence, nor does he say just sit back and take it. But he says, turn the other cheek also, the left cheek. On the one hand, this very subtle action tells the striker that this weapon that you think is so powerful, putting me in my place, it actually doesn't really work. I am a human being with dignity. I am not an object or a possession to be passed around and abused. That is one way to look at it. Another way is imagine this person turning the cheek, presenting their left cheek. If the striker were to strike them again, what would they have to do? Either they'd have to awkwardly backhand with the left hand, non-dominant hand, or they would be forced to strike them as an equal as a peer. Friends, this is a subtle action that reclaims the dignity of this oppressed person, doesn't retaliate with violence, but it exposes the evil of this situation. The second example is quite similar, and so is the third. In the second example, it says in verse 40, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, that is the inner garment worn close to the skin, let him have your cloak, your outer garment, as well. Now, what's in view here is a situation in which somebody is in debt, and the creditor is trying to get them to pay, and so they bring them to court. In the ancient world, you'd have to put up collateral, something as pledge, usually a possession, perhaps some money. The the people who would give the, the clothing on their back as pledge are people who have literally nothing else to give. The poorest of the poor. This is a person who is near destitution. They have nothing. And they're being sued, brought to court, and told, you have to give up your tunic as collateral. In response to this situation, this regrettably common situation, Jesus does not say, retaliate with violence. How dare you sue someone as poor as me? He doesn't say, cower in fear and submission and just take it. But he says, let him have your cloak as well. Now, friends, poor, 
Jewish peasants often wore two garments, the tunic and the cloak. This person is giving the creditor the tunic and continues to strip off their remaining clothes. Standing in this courtroom wearing nothing. Friends, this is one of the most powerful ways to expose the injustice of this situation. And in, in Judaism, it was nakedness was taboo, but friends, it was it was more shameful to cause nakedness or to see nakedness than to be naked. The person causing this nakedness and all the people viewing it, therefore, are indicted or condemned, while this poor person asserts his or her dignity without violence. The last example is the most specific, and translations have a tough time bringing that out, but it says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This Greek verb is only ever used to refer to Roman military officials using their right to force bystanders to carry their supplies. If a Roman official was on duty from the prefect or the emperor, they had the legal right to compel, to force bystanders to either lend a pack animal or to be that animal and carry their luggage. As you can imagine, friends, this was abused, severely abused. And so you see all these laws come into effect later on that that say you can only do certain things. And one of those laws is you only have the right to compel a bystander to go one mile. One mile was the limit. And there were severe penalties for any Roman official who forced people to do more than that they would be subject to unpredictable punishments. So we have a situation in which a Roman official forces a poor Galilean peasant to carry their bags one mile. And at the end of the mile, when the Roman official looks ready to receive his bags, he's surprised when this peasant wants to go further. But friends, this isn't just being overly kind, going the extra mile, this Roman official would likely become rather confused, rather worried. Is this person going to claim that I forced them to go two miles? Am I going to be expelled from the military, put in jail? In other words, the tables are turned. And this this person who is normally oppressed and abused and exploited now has the upper hand without committing any violence. This last verse in the first section, verse 42, give to the one who begs, do not refuse the one who would borrow. This has to do with Galilean peasants sharing their money so that as a group they could withstand the oppressive financial tactics of those in power. And so as they would share money, they would kind of gesture toward a just reality, but they would be uh, stronger, more resilient against such oppression. It's then that we get our famous passage about loving your enemies in verses 43 through 48. 
Jesus cites another passage in the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor, that's a direct citation, and hate your enemy. That's never stated exactly like that, but there are texts in the Psalms especially that talk about hating those who hate God, uh, being opposed to God's enemies and so forth. But Jesus then says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, this is not abstract, but these enemies, these persecutors are precisely the people who are slapping, humiliating these peasants, taking their clothes as pledge in suits and forcing them to be slaves or pack animals for them. Jesus says to love such persons. Not to love them by just putting up with it, but by acting in subtle, strategic ways that flip the light switch on evil. The final verse of this chapter is famous. And Jesus says, You, therefore, if you follow me, and if you abide by these readings of Torah that I've presented, if you, if you follow in the ways of the new kingdom, you, this is a future tense verb, you will be perfect. Sometimes the future tense can function as an imperative, you shall not murder, you will not murder. But this, this is kind of like in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. That's both a command and a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. God is blessing the original human pair. In the same way, he's saying, if you abide by these re-readings, these true readings of Torah, you will be perfect. And this is language of completeness. You'll be complete. You'll be fully grown as your heavenly Father is. The idea in this text, friends, is that those who are facing abuse and injustice are not to retaliate with violence, nor are they to sit by and let evil just happen. Rather, they are to respond in such a way that exposes evil, reclaims their dignity as those created in the image of God, and which points to a new reality. As I read this text, I can't help but think of Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama. She's told to leave her seat so that these white women could sit. She doesn't respond with violence, but nor does she just go with it, as the man sitting next to her did. But she stays put. She says, I am a human being. And she exposes the evil, and that would lead to the Montgomery bus boycott. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. in Birmingham, Alabama. His soldiers who never fought, or at least weren't taught to, to fight, they, they would sit in these diners, these restaurants, these, these stores, and they wouldn't fight. They, they would just sit for hours. One of his tactics also was to fill the jails. They would 
protest and demonstrate, again, without violence, and they would overwhelm the jails so that the, the system was, was broken. Subtle strategic actions that expose evil. All of those examples and these in the text, they flip the light switch on evil. It kind of unmasks this system for what it is. It's not violent retaliation, nor is it submission, but it's flipping on the lights in a dark world. We were talking in Bible study last Monday about how a lot of our friends, young adults in this area, friends of ours who have, they have a house, they have well-paying jobs, families, they're comfortable. And sometimes it's hard for people who are benefiting from the world as it is to see the need for a new world. It's hard for such people to be open to Christianity because they don't really see the need for anything else. But friends, there's a reason why some of the most profound social and revolutionary movements, they don't come from above, but they come from below. They come from people who are experiencing the evil of this world every day, who are not blind to it, And for us, we need to turn the lights on. So I guess my question is, how can we as Christians, especially those of us who don't experience this sort of oppression every day, how can we similarly turn on the lights or or flip the light switch exposing evil? I have three Example responses before I close this message, um, but there are more than three. We can think of many. The first example is that of sympathy, sympathizing with those who are oppressed, even if we are not. There's a story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran theologian who was martyred. He was killed by the Nazis in World War II. Um, he went to Harlem, to New York City, in 1930. For a year to study at Union Theological Seminary. And quickly, Bonhoeffer befriended all of these artists and activists in the Harlem Renaissance movement, and he went to their meetings, he went to their homes and broke bread with them. And this Bonhoeffer from Germany, from a different culture, facing different realities, quickly befriended such people. And you can see this come out in his writings and in his ministry. Another example that's related for us, if we cannot, like Bonhoeffer, move to a place like that, we can read. We can start to read. There's so much literature coming out, especially in the 20th century, uh, under the labels of black liberation theology or Latin American liberation theology, resources that are written by those who have faced injustice, who are reflecting on their Christian faith from below. I would love to have reading groups where we can engage works like that and grow in our awareness of these sorts of issues, even if we don't agree with everything written in the books. The final example is related to that one, um, and it's a, a little plug for a group that I've been involved with called Sacred Ground. Um... I was part of their group last year. It's, it's about a one-year program. Uh, once a month, you meet for about 90 minutes, 
and you read material and watch video content together, and then you discuss it. It's a race discussion group. And friends, I made some wonderful relationships with Christians around this area, uh, some, some of whom were not Christians. One man actually came to my ordination service, not a Christian, because of that relationship. And so there are ways that we, even from above, can grow in our sympathy, our awareness, so that we too can flip the light switch on evil. Let me close our time with this. By exposing the evil of this world, we reveal the need for a new world. So as followers of Jesus this morning, let's turn on the lights and point our world to the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the chance to engage these living words, words that may have applied originally to a certain specific context, but which can apply equally to our moment today. Help us, Lord, even though we are not in the shoes of these Galilean peasants and others throughout Western American history, help us still to identify with them, the least of these, and to shine your light into the darkness. We love you, Jesus, and pray that you would be with us as we continue to worship you in song and in fellowship this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.